Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. As most of you know, probably all of you know, uh, Father Dominic Legg is the director of the Thomistic Institute, <clears throat> an associate professor of dogmatic theology at the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception here in Washington, D.C., he is the owner of several degrees, including a law degree from Yale uh, Law School, as well as a doctorate in sacred theology from the University of uh, Freiburg in Switzerland. He's been a Dominican since 2001, uh, after practicing constitutional law for several years um, with the U.S. Department of Justice. He's also taught at the Catholic University of America and also um, uh, Providence College, of which I have fond memories. Um, not the college, but of his time at the college. I, well, both. <laughs> you have memory. <laughs> he is the author of many publications, including a, a book in 2016 with OUP, Oxford University Press, entitled The Trinitarian Christology of Thomas Aquinas. <clears throat> um, he is also the author of several articles um, that I have here uh, in a list that I have now lost, there it is, that pertain to the topic of his talk today, uh, including a recent uh, a chapter in a book on the life and works of Aquinas, exemplifying the life of wisdom, um, also Aquinas as a canonic uh, theologian, and then something forthcoming on Christ's prayer and our prayer. And so without further ado, welcome Father Dominic Beck. Thank you very much, Boyd. Um, I have, um, it's a tremendous honor for me to be here at uh, this podium and to address all of you. And I thank Father Thomas Joseph White for inviting me to give this talk. He also uh, put the title that's in the program, uh, which I did not come up with. Um, and the title I've actually given for the talk, which is a little bit different, The Trinity at Christ's Passion. It's sometimes said that when it comes to his treatment of the mystery of our salvation, and especially of Christ's passion, Thomas Aquinas leaves the Trinity largely out of account. In fact, this supposed omission is usually taken as evidence of Aquinas' supposed separation of the mystery of the Trinity from salvation history and from Christology. Should not the cross of Christ as the pinnacle of the whole divine work of salvation be the supreme moment of the revelation of the Trinity? Among prominent Catholic theologians, Hans Urs von Balthasar interprets Christ's passion, death, descent into hell, precisely as such a revelation and even as the theodramatic expression of intra-Trinitarian relations. Relatively few have taken up the challenge to articulate Aquinas' understanding of the Trinitarian dimensions of Christ's passion and exaltation, or to put it another way, Aquinas' approach to the cross as a revelation of the Trinity. In fact, for some, the appeal of more recent accounts, not Thomistic accounts, but more recent accounts of the Lord's cross, death, and resurrection, lies precisely in this, that they treat them as revelations of the Trinitarian mystery or even as intra-Trinitarian events. But I think that St. Thomas's understanding of the entirety of Christ's life, and above all of Christ's passion and glorification, is deeply Trinitarian and offers valuable insights into these central mysteries of the faith for us. And that especially in his scriptural commentaries, Aquinas paints this crowning moment of Christ's earthly life in vibrant, 
interpersonal Trinitarian color. Matthew Levering, in his new book just out from Cambridge University Press, Reconfiguring Thomistic Christology, sets out a challenge for contemporary Thomistic Christology to better integrate biblical typology in order to better articulate the New Testament's eschatological portraits of Jesus. And he especially recommends incorporating the typological materials found in Aquinas' biblical commentaries with the Summa Theologiae's more systematic presentation of a kind of speculative Christology in order to accomplish just this. I have to confess that I read Matthew's words on this too late in the process of preparing this paper to fully reconfigure my articulation of Thomistic Christology today around specific typological themes. But I do hope that Matthew will judge this a satisfactory effort at least, insofar as I am going to do precisely what he recommends, which is to primarily focus on Aquinas' scriptural commentaries, reading them with the synthetic presentation of the Summa in the background. And I think that's methodologically an extremely interesting thing to do and worth doing in many more domains. Because what it allows you to begin to see is sometimes in his scripture commentaries, Aquinas doesn't spell out everything that you would like him to say. But if you then refer back to what he's done in his systematic works, he actually does often have the, the kind of fuller account of what he indicates in the scriptural commentaries. But the scriptural commentaries' indications are often much more vibrant in the sense that Matthew is looking for and that I think also many contemporary theologians are looking for. So the structure of what I'm going to do uh, today, first I'm going to give a kind of overview of the whole picture for Aquinas as I read him, and then I'm going to review four specific ways, which I think are largely unnoticed by contemporary scholarship, by which Aquinas brings out the Trinitarian shape of our salvation as achieved by the cross of Christ. So, to begin with the overview of the whole picture. The passion as the climax, the culmination of the Son's visible mission. I would contend that a proper understanding of Aquinas' approach to Christ's passion and exaltation views it in the wider context of the divine missions. These missions themselves point back to the eternal processions, as we discussed yesterday. Those processions for Aquinas are the origin, the ratio, and the cause of creation, the exitus of all things from God, as well as of the dispensation of salvation accomplished in the divine missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is, the whole economy of salvation is based on the pattern of those processions. Christ's passion and exaltation are the center of the economy of salvation, or what Aquinas calls the dispensatio. They're the culmination of Christ's work in the Incarnation by which the whole of creation is lifted up and restored. Through his passion, in other words, Jesus manifests the Father and opens the way of our return to him. And this begins for us when the resurrected Christ breathes forth the Holy Spirit in full to the church so that we now can also share in the divine glory that the Son possessed with the Father before the foundation of the world by our reception of the Spirit. So by and from the cross, our sins are forgiven and we're brought to know and love the divine persons themselves as we possess them. When they're sent to us and they dwell in us, the invisible missions. Or to put this another way, and Aquinas does put it this way, the deepest reason for the passion as well as its ultimate cause, origin, and finality, is found precisely in the processions of the divine persons at the heart of the triune mystery. That's the pattern according to which human beings come from God and that marks out the path of our return. The richness of this Trinitarian overview of the whole and especially of the passion, 
is beautifully presented by Aquinas in a detailed commentary that he offers on Hebrews 2.10. Hebrews 2.10 reads, For it befit him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, who had brought many children into glory, to perfect the author of their salvation by his passion. That's Hebrews 2.10. Aquinas interprets this passage as saying that the Father, that's he for whom are all things and by whom are all things, that the Father is the perfecter, or in Aquinas's Latin, the consummator of Christ, consummator Christi, as the author of salvation, auctor salutis. Now, this is an extremely potent Trinitarian claim, especially when you know how Aquinas uses precisely those terms in other parts of his work. The Father is the origin, the source, and the principle. The Son, he's the, the origin, source, and principle of the Son, of the Passion, and of our adoption as children of God. The Son is the Auctor Salutis, the author of salvation, especially in his suffering on the cross, as we'll see. And this entails, then, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which for Aquinas, interestingly, is the true meaning of this Christological title, author of salvation. Now, Aquinas' exposition of these points is lengthy and complex in his Hebrews commentary, and I thought about making this paper just on that, but I decided that that would really be aided by amplification in some other areas, so I'm instead just going to summarize the key points of the Hebrews commentary text, as I've already begun to do. The first point is that, according to Aquinas in this text commenting on Hebrews 2.10, the Father, through the Passion, perfects Christ as the auctor salutis, the author of salvation. And this title is grounded in the truth that the Son is a principle with the Father of the procession of the Holy Spirit. Aquinas thinks, therefore, that the Son is necessarily a principle of the Spirit's missions, both invisible in grace and visible, like when Jesus breathes on the apostles on the evening of the resurrection. So with the Father, the Son is a source of the gift capital G, by which human beings are saved and sanctified. And in that sense, he's the author of salvation. This truth about the relation between the Son and the Holy Spirit, both in God in himself and in the economy of salvation, that is, eternal procession, and divine missions, extending that procession into time. So this truth about the Son and the Holy Spirit is likewise, of course, bound up with the eternal filiation of the Son, as begotten of the Father, eternal procession, and on the visible mission of the Son in the Incarnation, mission. And as I've argued in detail uh, in other places, for Aquinas, Christ's humanity shares in the filial mode of being of the eternal Son, so that even as man... Everything that Jesus is and does has a filial mode. It's characterized by him being the Son. It's from the Father. Jesus is from the Father. His humanity is also reflective of that and all of his actions. And he points back to the Father and his humanity shows us that and in all of its actions. And there's a corollary to this also regarding the Holy Spirit. All that the Son does and suffers in the Incarnation, Aquinas famously says, is salvation winning for us. Which, although Aquinas doesn't always mention the Holy Spirit, strongly implies it. Everything that Jesus does and suffers in the Incarnation 
is in a sense aiming at the pouring out of the Spirit, the sanctification of the world. And that's true supremely about the Passion. It's true also about everything else, but it's most clearly the case with the Passion. What's more, Christ is the author of salvation, that important term, both in the sense that he gives the Holy Spirit as God and as man for Aquinas, famous and important teaching of Aquinas, and in the sense that by his salvation-winning actions, what he does and suffers, he is authoring our salvation. He's bringing it about. He's enacting it. He's revealing the Father, and therefore his own identity as Son, and the Holy Spirit, who he's giving. Especially in the Passion, Jesus is stamping the Trinitarian pattern of relations in our human nature, so that salvation for us is simply, in a way, our reception of that pattern. As we receive the Holy Spirit from the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, we are configured to the Son, specifically in that cruciform shape, in his passion and resurrection, and were thus made adopted sons and daughters of the Father. And that, I think, for Aquinas, is the true meaning of the expression in the letter to the Hebrews that in the Passion, the Father is the consummator Christi, the perfecter of Christ as the author of salvation. And there's a lot more that could be said here in that Hebrews commentary text. The Son depends on the Father as proceeding from Him and in His work of salvation, especially on the cross. Aquinas has a little meditation on that, the Son depending on the Father. And we depend on the Son in His dependence on the Father. And as configured to the Son by the Holy Spirit, so that in the end, both Christ and we depend on the Father as sons. And then Aquinas has a beautiful concluding reflection on the church as the body of Christ, which, because of the glorification of the resurrection of Christ, bursts forth with Christ in the praise and glorification of the Father. This is um, commenting really on us being brethren of Jesus. Okay, that's, that's my initial overview, and I could get... I think there's much, much more to be said about that Hebrews text. But now I'd like to identify four ways that Aquinas also articulates uh, by which we can see the Trinitarian shape of the Passion. So the first way is that love is a cause of the Passion, and Aquinas sees this in interpersonal and Trinitarian terms. So the best text for this is John 3.16. Regarding that text, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that all who believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Regarding John 3.16, Aquinas explains that the cross is the culmination of the Father's gift of the Son to the world. So, for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to go into detail here. You can find it in Aquinas' John Commentary in Chapter 3, Lecture 3. And just to very briefly summarize, for Aquinas, the cross involves the greatest love because of who is loving, the Father, and who is given to the world, the Son in person, in his divine mission, which culminates in the Son being, quote, handed over for us all, end quote, in the Passion. And this produces, then, the greatest possible fruit, the gift of the Holy Spirit to the faithful, by which we're configured back to the Son and thus made adopted sons and daughters of the Father. And finally, Aquinas says, the cross is the greatest sign 
or revelation of that Trinitarian love precisely because it is a love even unto death. So, as, as I hope you can hear, there are echoes of many themes that more contemporary theologians would like to underline, and they're very much also in Aquinas, with the undergirding of a very sophisticated um, Trinitarian Christology that he presents in his systematic works. This commentary on John 3.16 about the Father's love raises a question for Aquinas. How could Christ's death on the cross be a gift of love? Does the Father want the Son to die? Or is not an expression like that, rather a perversion of love? And Aquinas phrases this, put, puts this question explicitly. This is text A on your handout. But does the Father really give him for this, that he would die on the cross? He did indeed give him over to death on the cross, insofar as he gave him the will of suffering on it, and this in two ways. First, because as the Son of God, he had from all eternity the will of assuming flesh and suffering for us, and he had this will from the Father. Second, because Christ's soul was inspired by God with the will to suffer. So this is a concise answer. It's typical of Aquinas' approach to this difficult theological question, which he treats at greater length on other occasions. But just to summarize, the Father does not will Christ's death or suffering as such. He wills that Christ would have such a perfect charity for us that he would even expose himself to death for our sake. Who wills death as such? Well, it's the sinners who put Jesus to death. The Father permits this. Christ accepts this out of love. But it's the love, the charity of Christ, that satisfies for our sins and merits our salvation, not the suffering or death in itself, per se. Note the Trinitarian theology that informs Aquinas' text that we've just read together. The Father is the ultimate origin of Christ's will to take up the cross, both as God and as man. In generating the Son, the Father gives him, quote, from all eternity the will of assuming flesh and suffering for us, end quote, and inspires the Son with perfect love, so that he is willing to suffer and die for our sake. And this brings us then to a central element of uh, my understanding of Aquinas' Trinitarian Christology of the Passion, that is, Christ's own charity, his own love. And here we see the Holy Spirit entering the picture. The Holy Spirit and Christ's supreme act of charity. A number of studies have underlined how, for Aquinas, Christ's suffering on the cross is a supreme act of charity, that this charity stands at the heart of his sacrifice, and that it's the key element of the satisfaction that Christ's passion accomplished. Often left unexamined, however, are the Trinitarian dimensions of this act. So, people appreciate the centrality of charity. They don't necessarily appreciate the Trinitarian dimension of the charity of Christ on the cross. One notable exception to this, of course, is Matthew Levering. So, in a certain way, um, this talk is a long footnote to Matthew Levering, I think. <laughs> so, first, the Father inspires Christ with the charity that prompts him to accept the passion. St. Thomas says this repeatedly. So text B says this. I'm not going to read it. It's from his commentary on Romans. Um, but the point is, Christ's humanity receives by a special inspiration from the Father the affection of charity that moves him to give his free consent to the Father's eternal will and so to undergo the passion freely. And Aquinas' choice of words evokes the invisible mission of the Holy Spirit since Christ's human charity is the effect in his humanity of the Holy Spirit's proper and personal presence. So when we trace this charity back to the Father, Aquinas is in effect also underlining that every effect 
of the Spirit's presence in Christ's humanity is also from the Father. It's seldom noticed that Aquinas accords such a prominent place to the Holy Spirit in Christ's passion. I think Matthew Levering is a notable exception to this. But it is, for me, striking how, especially in some of his lesser-known works, St. Thomas attributes Christ's sacrifice on the cross to the Holy Spirit in direct and personal terms. So he says things like, Christ as man was inspired, or moved, or even impelled by the Holy Spirit to suffer for us. As a young Dominican bachelor of the sentences, Thomas wrote, quote, As if by a kind of impulse of love for our restoration, Christ fulfilled the mystery, whence Isaiah 59.19 says, When he shall come as a rushing stream driven by the Spirit of the Lord. End quote. Actually, I think there's some very nice parallels here to the talk I heard from Brant Petrie yesterday about the uh, pouring forth of the Spirit with river images in the Old Testament. And that would be a wonderful place to reconnect Aquinas to some contemporary scholarship on this. The mature Aquinas uses the prophet Isaiah's image to make the almost surprising claim that the Holy Spirit causes Christ's passion. And this is text C. The cause why Christ shed his blood was the Holy Spirit, by whose motion and instinct, namely by charity for God and for neighbor, he did this. Same quotation. When he shall come as a rushing stream driven by the Spirit of the Lord, Isaiah 59, 19. And I'll, I'll skip the rest of the text. Since Aquinas, since Christ acted by the Spirit's motion and instinct, the Holy Spirit is for Aquinas a true principle of Christ's human act of self-oblation on the cross. And that's because, A, Christ's habitual grace, and hence his charity, is perfectly full. B, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a dimension of Christ's fullness of grace, ensure that Jesus as man wills what God wills according to the mode in which God wills it. So they're disposing his humanity to act according to a divine instinct. That's technical terminology for Aquinas regarding the gifts. And C, the Holy Spirit's impulse activates Jesus' human will from within to perform a supremely free act. So now we come to the second way of seeing the Trinitarian shape of the Passion. And this is to the Father. So, so far we've spoken of descending gifts of love, the Father's love for the Son and for us, the Holy Spirit's gift of charity to Christ as man, moving him to the cross. But Aquinas also sees in Christ's Passion a movement in the opposite direction, from Christ to the Father. And this is the second way I want to highlight. So here it's important to distinguish, as we heard from Father Thomas Joseph yesterday, to distinguish between Christ as God and as man. For good Trinitarian reasons, Aquinas never says that the Son is apart from the Father or that the Son as God returns to the Father. That's because in Aquinas' mind, as God, the Son never leaves the Father, nor could he. And if he could, I think Aquinas would suggest he wouldn't be one God consubstantial with the Father. Neither does Aquinas say that as God, the Son gives us anything, sorry, that the Son gives anything to the Father that is not already from the Father. And that's really important for Aquinas also. That's because the Father and the Son are themselves constituted as divine persons by relations of origin. The Father in one eternal act gives everything that he is and has to the Son the Son receives everything that he is and has from the Father, and the Father loves the Son and the Son the Father with the very same personal love, the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from them both and is their mutual love and nexus. So even the Son's eternal personal love of the Father, which in a, I think, too human way of thinking, might seem like something new given by the Son to the Father, is, in Aquinas' account, necessarily from the Father, expressing exactly the Son's personal mode of being and acting. 
And I think that to Aquinas' mind, to deny this would undermine the basis for Christian belief in the Trinity because he wants to underline that the Son receives all from the Father and has nothing else besides. And that there are not two different notional relations of love in God. There's not different relations of Father to Son and Son to Father with respect to notional love, which would divide the Holy Spirit. Rather, Aquinas thinks there's only one mutual notional love, and hence only one person who proceeds by way of love from both Father and Son. Nothing in the incarnation of the Son changes these Trinitarian truths. To the contrary, the whole point is that the incarnation reveals and makes present in a new way the eternal procession of the Son, who then sends the Holy Spirit. Christ's humanity is marked to the depths of its being with the Son's filial mode. In all that Christ is and does, he is from the Father and oriented to the Father. Okay, this has all been very abstract. Let's make it more concrete. Consider Christ's obedience. When St. Thomas quotes the Christological hymn from Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, etc., Aquinas often adds the Father's name into the Pauline text to underline that St. Paul is speaking in particular of Christ's obedience to the Father. So you see this in text D, uh, and also in text F. This obedience is for Aquinas just another way of saying that Christ loves the Father. This obedience is from the Father because the divine will to save us through the cross is found first in the Father, and because the Father inspires Christ as man with charity by giving him the Holy Spirit. So it's obedience from the Father. But it's also obedience directed to the Father. Because as man, Christ loves the Father and moved by the Holy Spirit accepts and fulfills the Father's plan. To St. Thomas's mind, the Father's command neither constrains Christ nor negates his human will, but is rather the Father's plan for our salvation, which the Son embraces with the perfect charity given him in the Holy Spirit's invisible mission. Aquinas writes this, quote, This itself, that he obeyed, proceeded from the love which he had for the Father and for us, end quote. So, the charity of Christ ordered his whole life, his whole humanity, to the Father. And so the charity of Christ, above all in the Passion, the supreme act of charity, reverses the disobedience of our first parents and so restores the human race to grace and perfects it. Note the Trinitarian revelation here. The cross reveals to the world that Jesus loves the Father. And that's precisely what Jesus says at John 14, 31. I do as the Father has commanded me that the world may know that I love the Father. So Christ's obedience is just one example here. We could enumerate others, but for the interest of time, I'm just going to mention them. Christ's prayer, Christ's sacrifice, even his resurrection and exaltation, all of them are framed by Aquinas as toward the Father. Okay, this brings us to the third way I'd like to talk about. The third way to see the Trinitarian shape of the passion in Aquinas. And this is Christ's cry to the Father. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? A crucial, uh, a crucial text. For many contemporary theologians, of course, as you all know very well, how one accounts for this poignant cry of Christ is a critical measure for assessing a theology of the Passion. Some claim that this cry shows that the Son, as God, was abandoned by or separated from the Father. Now, on, on this point, or this interpretation, 
I think Aquinas certainly would not agree. Yet it's not generally acknowledged that Aquinas does think that there is a Trinitarian dimension to this cry of the Son on the cross. Aquinas regards it as revealing a deep mystery to us, bracketed, he thinks, by two Christological errors. One he identifies as Arian, the other as Nestorian. The so-called Arian reading of the cry of dereliction is that the word as word is abandoned by God. This is, quote, an impious reading, end quote, Aquinas writes, because there can be no separation between the word and the Father, as Jesus himself tells us at John 7, 29, he who sent me is with me. In contrast, the Nestorian reading, according to Aquinas, goes wrong in the other direction, considering the cry as spoken by a man who could be separated from God. Aquinas' solution is to say that the person of the word says this, makes this cry, as man. That is, the subject who speaks is the incarnate son. He speaks in his human nature with reference to his humanity's relation to the Father, not with reference to the Word's relation to the Father in the divinity. So if that's the case, in what sense then is it meaningful to say that Christ as man is abandoned by the Father? This is text F on your handout. Someone is called abandoned by God when God is not present to him, just as God is seen to be present when God protects him and fulfills his petition. The Lord God is with me as a strong warrior, therefore those who persecute me will fall and will be weak, Jeremiah 20. And because Christ was not freed from his bodily sufferings when he was in the Passion, for this reason he is called abandoned at that hour, that is, exposed to the Passion. He did not spare his own son, etc., Romans 8. Moreover, his petition, Father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me, Matthew 26, did not seem to be fulfilled, because that petition was made according to his flesh. Isaiah 54, for a moment and for a little, I have abandoned you. That is, I have exposed you to the passion, and with great mercies I will gather you, namely in the resurrection. And so he says, why have you abandoned me? That is, why have you exposed me? to the Passion. Christ's cry refers to the suffering that he undergoes in his Passion, from which the Father does not protect him. So it doesn't refer to any sin in Christ or to any separation from God. In fact, Aquinas writes, quote, Christ is called abandoned not with respect to the union, nor with respect to grace, but with respect to the Passion, end quote. For Aquinas, Christ's anguish on the cross surpasses all other human suffering precisely because Jesus is not separated from God. He has the beatific vision and thus perfect wisdom and charity, and there'd be a very interesting paper just on that, about how that, in fact, makes his suffering greater, according to Aquinas. So union with God, in a way, at the moment of the Passion, enables the passion to be the fullest form of self-offering and suffering. Aquinas ties Christ's cry of dereliction to his prayer at Gethsemane. So it's an expression of natural human revulsion in the face of suffering and death. As Aquinas puts it, the, quote, magnitude of his human feeling, end quote. But it doesn't mean that Christ wills as man to avoid the cross, in fact, Aquinas thinks that the tenor of Psalm 21, which Aquinas is quoting, expresses confidence in God. Christ as man hoped in God's spiritual aid as he pronounced these words from the cross. Quote, as if Christ said, you have abandoned me by exposing me to a bodily passion. Do not depart from me by supporting me with spiritual aid. End quote. St. Thomas offers a second explanation of the cry. 
But Jesus is speaking on behalf of sinners, the head crying out with the words of the body united to him. And this reading harmonizes perfectly with the first explanation that I've just been discussing. Christ, quote, mourns over sin in persona nostra, Aquinas says, and continuing the quote, but his sorrow over all the sins of the world brings with it a suffering in body and soul, which is his own, end quote. So for Aquinas, a Christ, a Christ's cry from the cross is both a revelation and an instruction. It manifests the depth of the mystery of the incarnation, the reality of Christ's sufferings as man, the magnitude of his love for us and for the Father, and finally his human confidence in and obedience to the Father. Now, the fourth way. This is the fourth and final aspect that I'll discuss, the way of seeing the Trinitarian shape of the passion for Aquinas. It's the passion as the hour of glorification. Christ is glorified on the cross. We hear this on the lips of Jesus on the night before his death. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. John 17.1 For St. Thomas, this petition englobes both the passion and the exaltation of Christ in the resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And it's marked with major Trinitarian themes. So Aquinas doesn't rigidly divide up these glorifications, that is, passion, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Spirit. He doesn't really divide them up. He regards them as facets of a single mystery, the hour of Christ's glorification. So we can look at a typical text. There's many others that you could cite on this point. This is text G. Christ asked to be glorified by the Father in the Passion through the many miracles that were then shown when the sun was obscured, the veil of the temple was rent, and the tombs were opened. Therefore, he says in this sense, glorifying, glorify your Son by showing me in the Passion to be your Son. Thus the centurion seeing the miracles, said, truly, he was the Son of God. The dominant chord here is that Christ is glorified in the Passion by the Father when the miracles accompanying the crucifixion show, at least to some, at least to the centurion, that Christ is the true Son. We can detect something similar when St. Thomas claims in another text that the Father glorifies Christ as man by making him the high priest who offers himself on the altar of the cross. Quoting Hebrews 5.5, 5, St. Thomas suggests that Christ did not give this glory to himself. He received it from the Father, and this is very interesting, because as man, he's made a priest by the Father. In fact, he's made the high priest through whose offering the whole world is saved. As Aquinas says in another text, quote, it, as is, it is as if Christ had said, The Father, by his love for me, has ordained that through my passion I would redeem the human race. End quote. Another aspect. The cross is glorious because it is the culminating moment of Christ's own self-revelation and self-manifestation, of his loving obedience, inspired by the Father's love and moved by the Holy Spirit, of his identity as the Son, who is from the Father, and thus as man entirely ordered to the Father. Aquinas, on this point, cites Christ's prayers to the Father from the cross, Father, forgive them, and Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He says, quote, the passion was Christ's exaltation to glory. In his passion, Christ showed his supreme love, end quote. And it should not surprise us that St. Thomas is fond of quoting St. Augustine, saying that Christ on the cross was not only a priest offering sacrifice, but was also, in addition, a master or teacher. 
The cross was not only the gibbet of the sufferer, Aquinas writes, but was also the cathedra, the chair of the teacher. As incarnate wisdom itself, Jesus reveals the Father to us and shows us the way to the Father by what he teaches us on the cross. And in fact, Aquinas multiplies scriptural images to express this aspect of the cross's glory. This is text H. That Christ himself carries the cross, though it may be a great reproach in the eyes of the impious and unfaithful, is a great mystery to the faithful and pious. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, that is, to us, it is the power of God. Christ carries his cross like a king his scepter, as a sign of the glory that is his universal dominion over all things. He carries it like a victor, carries the trophy of his victory, like a teacher, carries his lampstand, on which was placed the lamp of his teaching, because the word of the cross is the power of God. No one lights a lamp and places it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand so that those who enter would see the light. End quote. The cross for Aquinas is thus the lampstand of Christ's teaching. When he hangs on the cross, Jesus is lifted up so that his glory and the light of his wisdom would illuminate the whole world. Christ's teaching from the cross thus includes the example of how we are to live. Another quote from Aquinas, quote, For as Augustine says, the passion of Christ is sufficient as a complete instruction for our life. There is no example of virtue lacking to the cross, end quote. And another quote, whatever the tribulation, its remedy is found in the cross, end quote. Perhaps the most fundamental dimension of the cross as glory for Aquinas, and here we're reaching the end of this talk, the most fundamental dimension is that it reveals the triune God. That's the point I want to end with. This is exactly what Jesus means, Aquinas thinks, when he says at the hour of his passion, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, he will glorify him in himself. John 13, 31 to 32. Look at text I. Quote, Christ began to have this glory, that is, that others would know the glory that he has in himself, in the resurrection and in the passion. Aquinas does not divide them strictly. In which men began to know his power and his divinity. The Lord, speaking about this glorification of his, says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, namely according to his humanity, in his passion, which was imminent. Glory is an effect in the knowledge of men, and God, namely the Father, is glorified in him. So this is a, a work of revelation. For the Son not only reveals himself, but also the Father. Father, I have manifested in your name, and hence, not only the Son is glorified here, but also the Father. No one wishes to know the Father except the Son, and him to whom the Son wishes to reveal him, Matthew 11. But it belongs to someone greater to return more than he receives. And so Christ adds, And if God is glorified in him, that is, if the glory of God the Father somehow increases because of the glory of the Son of Man, insofar as he is better known by all, God has also glorified him in himself. That is, he has made known that Christ Jesus is his glory. This passage is dense theological commentary, but it's rich with Trinitarian implications. So just to mention a few before concluding, in the Passion and Resurrection, Jesus is made known as possessing glory in himself. And Aquinas thinks that's a way of revealing that he's the Son in person. His humanity is glorious with the words glory. And the Passion and Resurrection glorify Christ as man because he's made known as the Word. Now, St. Thomas doesn't mention it here, but I think it's clear that this necessarily implicates the Holy Spirit, which Aquinas says, uh, to whom it is 
proper to glorify the sun, and whose interior illumination is necessary, Aquinas thinks, for anyone to recognize Christ as the sun, and especially Christ crucified. So, if the passion glorifies the sun because the passion makes the sun known as the sun, it's implicitly necessary, according to Aquinas' own account, that the Holy Spirit must be working in the person gazing on Christ crucified to be able to recognize that. What is more, Aquinas continues, the Son not only reveals himself, but also the Father, because he's constituted as a person by his relation to the Father. So if you know the Son as Son, you know the Father as Father. Consequently, the glorification of Christ as man in the Passion is also the revelation, the making better known, and hence the glorification of the Father, and in fact of the whole Trinity. Finally, Aquinas concludes by tracing this glorification back to the Father as its origin. Christ Jesus is made glorious by the Father who sent him in the glory of the Son, a glory that is from the Father. And I think it's very interesting that Aquinas, almost uh, sounding a little Balthazarian here, is talking about how the glory of God the Father is somehow increased. He doesn't mean in God, of course. He means insofar as he is made better known. So for Aquinas, bringing us to know and love God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the goal of the Incarnation. And the culmination of that is the Passion. This is the Passion's ultimate fruit, that we would have the Holy Trinity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.